But let me start out this message by talking to the kids tonight. And by that I mean early teens on down. Mid-teens, you're not interested. Kids younger than mid-teens will know that feeling quite well when all of a sudden, kids, you know this? When all of a sudden and by surprise, you think you're in trouble. You know that? That feeling in your stomach, or is it your lungs, or your heart, your heart goes faster. Somehow it makes your eyes bigger, because you do this. Every muscle freezes. Apparently kids think mom and dad are like T-Rexes, and as long as you don't move, they won't notice you. Maybe, maybe kids, maybe you said something. And you got a quick look from mom right then. And you thought, ooh, ooh, what did I say? Did I say one of those words that I didn't know was bad until I found out afterwards it's bad? Or maybe you didn't even say anything wrong. Maybe they just gave you a, what you thought was a mean look and it was just a look. You just misread it. Or maybe it's another kind of story where you're right in the middle of doing something that you know is wrong. And you're just about to think, you're thinking to yourself right then, oh man, if dad walked in right now, I'd be in big, and then boom, he's there. You know that feeling. Now, sometimes that feeling is wrong. Sometimes we feel guilty when we shouldn't. The book of Proverbs talks about this. It says, the guilty run and hide when no one's after them. So you've ever known that feeling of running or hiding or feeling scared when there's no reason to be afraid? Proverbs talks about that. Sometimes that feeling is wrong, but even then, even when that feeling is not because someone's after us, because it's a fearful situation, even then it should remind us that we're in general guilty people. The guilty flee or run or hide when no one is even after them. And sometimes that guilty feeling then is right, right? Sometimes your hand is in the cookie jar when it shouldn't be. Sometimes we feel guilty because we are guilty. Well, kids, I have some bad news and some good news for you. When you're an adult, I mean like a a real adult, not, not like your big brother, but like you shave and you pay bills and you have a mortgage and that kind of stuff, Uh, you probably won't have that freak out stomach, lungs, heart, big eyes, frozen feeling as much as you do now. I probably haven't had that in a month. (laughs) What? When I was a kid, it used to be a lot more than that. It used to be weekly. But now it's, you know, I don't know. Oh, there's a cop. My wife says, hey, can we talk later? Oh, boy. (laughs) What? But, but generally, it's, it's less than it used to be. That's pretty cool, huh, kids? That's the good news. Here's the bad news. Most adults are pretty used to not getting in trouble. Most adults have a hard time feeling guilty. Many grown-ups almost never feel like they're in big trouble or there's someone to hold them accountable. And some adults, on the other hand, still feel like little kids. And they often feel like they're in trouble, but that isn't a good feeling. It's like that proverb. They're afraid even when no one chases them. So the Bible says this. The Bible says that some bad feelings 
are good. The Bible also says that some bad feelings are bad. And not just bad, but they're even wrong and deadly. And what I'm getting at is this. The Bible says there's a very big difference between regret and repentance. Or just feeling sorry and doing business with God. So turn to 2 Corinthians 7 if you have a Bible with you tonight. And we'll look at a few verses here that show us this distinction between regret and repentance. We could say that 2 Corinthians 7 tells us what Charlie Brown knew all along. There's such a thing as good grief. There's sweetness in godly sorrow. We'll start with just verses 9 through 11, and then we'll look around it in just a little bit here. But here's what Paul writes, 2 Corinthians 7. He says, as it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved. Remember, he's writing to a church here, the church in Corinth. Not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. Here's the key, verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you've proved yourselves innocent in this matter. Now, what is this matter? That's how it ends, verse 11. That that verse ends with, this is how you've proved yourself innocent in the matter. What is the matter? What's the sin that Paul's talking about? And hence, what's the occasion for their repentance that he's talking about? Well, let's back up and let's start reading earlier. In verse 1, he began, after giving some great promises in chapter 6, chapter 7, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So he calls them to holiness. And I think that call to holiness leads him into some sort of scenario that we're going to have to piece together. Verse 2. He says, make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. You see how it sounds like he's defending himself? Rightly so. Because after Paul left Corinth... Some of the leadership there, we're not sure who or which or how many even, but some of the leadership began to teach other things. That's why 1 Corinthians is such a hard letter, dealing with so many wrong things, fixing this, fixing that. So wrong things were taught, and part of teaching wrong things means also getting rid of the guy who taught you the right things. So they started throwing Paul under the bus. They started slandering him. So Paul's saying here, we didn't wrong anyone, we didn't corrupt anyone, we didn't take advantage of anyone. The very things that whoever replaced Paul was saying there in the church of Corinth. Verse 3, he says, I don't say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I'm acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I'm overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. 
We were afflicted at every turn. We're fighting without and fear within. But God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you as he told us of your longing, your mourning, repentance, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. So here's what's going on. Paul gets word that in Corinth, some have turned against him, and some have turned the whole church practically against Paul. They've gossiped against him, and Paul could leave his missionary trip to go handle it himself, but he doesn't. He sends Titus. And he probably sends Titus with a letter. It would be a letter that would be between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians in chronology. We don't have it. it. Who knows? Maybe it was too hard for God to say that goes in the Bible. We don't know. It's not in the Bible, though. But Titus likely carries a letter of harsh, heavy, but probably right, confrontation to the Corinthian church, where Paul sets himself straight before them, and he sets them straight before the Lord. Titus goes, and he's a good representative of Paul, so he not only gives them a letter, but he pleads with them. He clears things up. He, he, he fixes that rumor. He addresses that guy. And, and as Titus leaves, just as Paul is now in, in time of turmoil, trial, suffering, Fighting outside his fears within, he says here in 2 Corinthians 7. And right at that time, Titus shows up with news for how things are going in Corinth. And he says, well, they, uh, they've comforted me. Not only do they welcome me, Titus says, but they've comforted me. And not only that, but they tell me about your longing. They're longing for you, Paul. They tell me that they're mourning about what they've done, what they've believed, what they've embraced, what they've said against you. They have a zeal for me also, and in that, Paul says, I rejoiced still more. Verse 8, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. That harsh letter, that missing one and a half Corinthians. I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. He wrote him a hard letter. He felt bad that it was so hard, but he felt good about what it did, and it certainly did do good things. Look on the other side of what we already read, verse 12. More context here. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong. Here's this guy, whoever it is, who took over after Paul and led people astray. I didn't write it to confront him, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong. He's talking about himself there. He didn't write it to defend himself, really. But in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God, and long story short, <laughs> therefore we are comforted. That's the context. But back to those verses there in the middle, verses 9 through 11, in this topic of regret versus repentance. I want to ask four questions of these verses tonight. First, what is repentance? What is repentance? Well, repent means to turn, to turn from something and to turn to something. It's beginning to turn in our perspective about sin, for one, beginning to see sin for what it is, and beginning to hate it because we see it for what it is. It's rebellion against God. 
It's cosmic, cosmic rebellion. It's, it's serious, it's weighty, it's deadly. To repent is be, to begin to see ourselves aright as well. To not only see ourselves as sinful and having done sin, but to see ourselves as under judgment. So it's beginning to have regret, remorse, sorrow for our sin. But repentance also includes feeling a need, right? Feeling desperate, feeling as though God must help, he must do something. And so repentance includes giving up on whatever form of self-salvation you had before. Some save themselves in a sense, by pretending there's just no law. I'm good because there's no standard to live up to. Uh, I'm good because I do what I want, and that's my rule, that's my law. Or some think that by earning, by working hard, by being good, by keeping your nose clean, by dotting the I's and crossing the T's, then maybe you'll do good enough and God will let you in, or something like that. Repentance is giving up on any form of self-salvation. And so repentance is one side of a coin that we call conversion, turning. The conversion is repentance on one side and faith on the other. And that's why in the book of Acts, repentance and faith always go together. Repent and believe and be saved in so many different places in the book of Acts. It's two sides of one coin. They must go together. They do go together. Repentance sees the need. Faith sees the solution. That's what is repentance. Secondly, we could ask this question. How is repentance different than worldly regret? That's the word, the phrase Paul uses. I think it's in verse 10. He says worldly grief there, right? How is repentance different than worldly grief? Paul says, indeed, that there is a difference in verse 10. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So there's a big difference, and we should know the difference. But we should start out by saying the difference between regret and repentance, mere regret and repentance, isn't always clear. It is not easily discoverable. They are often mingled together in a messy meatball sandwich. And it's trying to, you know, pull out cheese or something like that or remove sauce or something like that. Sometimes it's very difficult. If you have sort of an engineering scientific mind, you like black, white, you like litmus tests that always turn this certain color and there, it's, it's scientific, it's proven. And you want to know what is regret and what is repentance. And I want to be able to know green light, red light, no, red light. It's not going to be that easy. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't try to discover discover what the difference is because Paul talks about a difference here, doesn't he? And he doesn't say you can't figure it out or, uh, you know, there's no hope in, in trying to even mention a difference. He does mention a difference. So how is repentance different than mere regret or worldly grief? Well, worldly grief is, well, it's worldly. If it's what the world can do, it's not 
it's not repentant. It's not supernatural. Think of how the world, how you, before you became a Christian, how you sometimes now as a Christian express sorrow or the reasons for your sorrow when you're caught, when you're doing something wrong. Your grief or regret may be selfish. You may be grieving simply because of lost circumstances, because of new consequences. You may be grieving merely out of embarrassment. That's all, it's all about you, right? It could be about others. It could be more horizontal, though. Worldly regret can show some love for others. It can feel bad that you hurt a spouse, that you hurt a friend, that you hurt a dad. But none of that, either the selfish kind or the mere horizontal kind, is vertical in God word. Godly sorrow, by very nature, has to be God word, God focused, God oriented. And that's why David in Psalm 51, after his sin with Bathsheba, prayed against you and you only have I sinned. What, David didn't do any horizontal sins? He didn't sin against any people in that horrible debacle? Oh, he sure did, left and right. But his sinning against them was more importantly a sinning against God. So he can say against you and you only have I sinned. Worldly grief is what the world does. It's worldly. And if the world can do it, well, you should know that you need more than that. Worldly regret also seeks to minimize or ignore the guilt. And ignoring the guilt or minimizing the guilt feels good for a while. Every time we stuff it back down deeper... Or raise ourselves up a little higher. Maybe we feel bad over here about this shortcoming. So we'll raise ourselves up more over here. And to try to ignore this, we focus on this. That rides a train of your own self-assessment. And those are bumpy tracks. And often those cracks, the tracks really show and And it's an unsatisfying, dangerous road that sometimes crashes and sometimes crashes publicly. Not to mention, it's simply not dealing with reality, right? That's part of worldly regret sometimes. Worldly regret often tries to work your way out of it. It's thinking perhaps that guilt can be removed with prolonged emotional flogging. You know what I'm talking about? Just feeling bad and really bad and feeling as though there's some sort of cleansing that helps, that purges simply by your emotional flogging. Maybe you think it's coming to God sad, all the while you're still holding back some of your chips with him. I think you see that in the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. Remember there's a, a prodigal son who goes away, but there's a an older brother who stays behind, when the prodigal son, the younger son, returns, how does he return? Is it a good example of godly repentance? No. He comes and offers to work for his father, doesn't he? 
This is the only chip I got left to play. I feel bad about what I did, but I'm going to play this chip. Well, the father knows grace, and so he hugs him and puts a robe on him and says, no son of mine's working around here. Not like that. You're not one of the servants. He didn't see himself desperately enough. It was worldly regret at first. Sometimes you can spot worldly regret because it's merely intellectual. It's merely assent. It's honest, but it's not humble. It's not crushed. First Corinthians, I'm sorry, Second Corinthians 7, the passage we're looking at, Paul keeps talking about godly grief, not godly admission, not godly confession. Oh, it includes admission and confession, but he uses the word grief. He's talking about the fact that even the world feels badly So Christians should feel badly, but in a different way, and under different circumstances. It's godly grief. There's something emotional about it when we see what the sin is and what it means. Worldly regret is often self-disappointment. It looks sorrowful, but instead it's rooted in, in pride, you're surprised, perhaps, that you failed. Maybe you won't say, I'm just sad that I let myself down. Maybe you know to say, I'm just sad that I let others down. Or maybe you'd say, I'm sad that I let God down. But really, the focus is on you. Feeling bad that you could do that? walking around in disappointment, surprised that you could do that. That kind of guilt actually isn't ready for grace yet, is it? It's not. It's not giving up on self. It's not ready for the healing joy of the gospel because it's not looking outside of self for hope. Godly grief also isn't punitive. It's not payment. That's what Paul means when he says in verse 9, look at that. I rejoiced not because you were grieved. And then he goes on from there. What he means is, I didn't write that hard letter to you just to make you feel bad. I did it so that you'd have clarity. In the process, you would feel bad, but feel bad in a good way, in a healing sort of way. That's what is repentance. So what are the differences between Regret and repentance, I've mentioned a few already, and we'll see more as we keep asking ourselves other questions about these verses. Third question of the four, why is this important? Why is it important to get this right, to get the definition of repentance right, to do repentance right, and to distinguish between regret and repentance? Well, why, number one? Because repentance is essential to conversion. That's the door we went through to get saved or become Christians. Remember, faith and repentance go together. The gospel invitation that you hear throughout Acts is repent and believe the gospel. They go together, two sides of one conversion coin. So... Repentance is essential to conversion. That's 
the first reason why it's important. The second reason why it's important is that repentance is part of how Christians stay saved. Let me say that again. Repentance is how Christians stay saved. Now, by that, I don't mean that some who are truly saved can lose that salvation by doing less repentance and eventually no repentance. What I mean is that, simply, Christians keep repenting. As long as there's sin, and there will be until our bodies are redeemed, until Jesus returns, or we're, we're dead, or taken up to heaven. As long as there's sin, there should be repentance for Christians. So giving up on repentance is giving up on seeing your need for the gospel. There's no way to give up on the gospel, I'm sorry, no way to give up on repentance and not eventually have given up on the solution to which repentance pointed you, the gospel. It's essentially deciding to pick a different path. No repentance is essentially, even if slowly, even if subtly, it's picking a different path. It's picking a different salvation. So those who say that they at one time repented and believed, and they were his, they were redeemed, and they've since given up on repentance, and they continue to do so, they never return to repentance, they die in that state, we don't know hearts for sure, yes, but, but theoretically speaking, they prove that they never really had true repentance and faith in the first place. It may have looked like it. They may have said that it was. It may have looked like a turn. It may have looked like a change. But by its very nature, true repentance isn't a one-and-done thing. It's like being a one-time addict. By its very nature, there's no such thing as a one-time addict. I don't think. Maybe I'm wrong. But you get the point. Remember Martin Luther started, in a sense, the Reformation by nailing 95 different theses to a church door as a statement, as a protest. The first one was this. Our Lord Jesus Christ willed that the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. The entire life of believers is to be one of repentance. Here's how the same thing's worded almost 150 years later by a Puritan, John Owen, and his friends when they wrote up something called the Savoy Declaration of Faith. This is going deep into the bag, isn't it? The Savoy Declaration of Faith. It's actually a a reworking and editing and adding to of the Westminster Confession of Faith, which many of you in here will have heard of that before if you haven't heard of the Savoy Declaration of Faith. But look, listen to this. It's just great. Here's a paraphrase, at least, a smoothing out a little bit of what they wrote back in 1658 about repentance. God has, in the covenant of grace, mercifully provided for believers sinning that they be renewed through repentance. This repentance is a gift of grace, whereby a person, by the Holy Spirit, is made sensible of the manifold evils of sin. And by faith in Christ, 
humbles himself with godly sorrow, detesting that sin, and praying for pardon and strength of grace with an endeavor to walk before God in well-pleasing ways. Goes on. Since repentance is to be continued through the whole course of our lives, it's every man's duty to repent of his particular known sins particularly. That's, that's good wording there. Particular sins repented of particularly. Known sins, yes, but particular known sins repented of particularly. They say, such is the provision which God has made through Christ in the covenant of grace for the preservation of believers unto salvation. Although there is no small, although there is no sin so small, but it deserves damnation, yet there is no sin so great that it shall bring damnation on them who repent. Which makes the constant preaching of repentance necessary so in 2 Corinthians 7 there are two paths there's godly grief and it leads to salvation and there's worldly regret and it leads to eternal death two paths another reason why this is important is because repentance is how Christians grow it's how Christians grow in grace it's not just what you have to do to stay saved In a sense, it's how Christians grow. Now let me give you a bunch more whys from the verses we started with earlier tonight. Verses 9 through 11 of 2 Corinthians 7. Let me give you a bunch of whys. Which really sort of build upon why number three, that Christians grow in grace. Let me show you what I mean. Why number four? It's hitched to godliness because it's called godly grief. And it's called godly grief in verse 9, in verse 10, and verse 11. Grief can be godly. It's hitched to godliness. Number five, it leads to salvation. Verse 10, we already talked about that. Why number six? It is, look at verse 10, it is without regret, Paul says. They had a kind of grieving that was without regret. Now, he doesn't mean that there was no regret anymore about the sin. Like they were almost glad they did it because this whole process has been fun. It doesn't mean that there's no ever any regret for past sins. It doesn't mean there's guilt, but there can be regret. What it means is that they didn't have any regret about the confrontation. And they didn't have any regret about the grieving. And they didn't have any regret about the repentance. There's no regret there. That whole process, no regret. God was in it. Why number seven? Well, verse 11. And here he just stacks them up. He says, it produced in you eagerness, zeal. You see that? Eagerness. To clear yourselves. First, I'm sorry, back up. Verse 11, it begins with earnestness. See what earnestness this godliness has produced in you? Sincerity and zeal. And then he says, you also move from that to eagerness to clear yourselves. Zeal to clear yourselves. 
And what does he mean by clear yourselves? Well, he means clear your name to make it clear who you stand with and not against, i.e. Paul. It produced in them a confidence, you could say. It also, Paul says, produced a holy indignation at unloving unrighteousness. Paul says, what indignation? And he puts it in a list of good things. Why do he say that? Because their repentance brought, yes, first grief and humility, but eventually it, it even itself led to a kind of boldness, a kind of boldness that they could be mad in a holy sort of way at the lies and the lying that happened against Paul. He says it produced a holy fear. What fear, he says in verse 11. And longing, love for each other. What longing? Longing for Paul. Longing for Titus to come back, perhaps. What longing? What zeal, he says. See him just stacking up whys. Why this is important. And then he ends with this. It produces bold righteous justice. The ESV says at the end of verse 11, what punishment? What punishment? Well, really it's what justice. What it means is that Paul is saying, these people dealt with business. Again, it comes back to that issue of their clearing of their name and their indignation towards unloving, unrighteous, false teachers who've taught falsehood, divided the church, and spoken against Paul falsely. They must have thrown this guy out, whoever this bad guy was. What justice, he says. So you can see all kinds of whys, why this is important. It grows us in grace. It's how we keep saved, in a sense. It's how we persevere. It's essential to conversion. One more question to ask as we wrap it up, is this. How do we pursue biblical repentance then? How do we pursue it? How do we pursue the right kind of repentance that Paul says leads to salvation, is part of God's plan to persevere us, keep us, and it's even how we grow in grace, and grow in grace I have on my list here. I didn't count them all verbally to you, but I have 13 different ways that God grows us in his grace according to this passage. So it's important. How do we pursue it then? By not limiting it, I think. In other words, not by thinking that repentance is only applicable to the really bad sins or the really entrenched sin habits. Repentance is not just for the really bad sins, not just for the really entrenched sinful habits. Every sin, in a sense, deserves thought about what it is. So another way we pursue repentance is by thinking about the seriousness of sin, the ugliness of sin, the odium of sin, to use a thick, rich, outdated word. One Puritan book has the subtitle, The Sinfulness of Sin. That's one way of putting what I'm getting at here. We pursue repentance by not letting sin just be sin, not letting sin just be mistake, 
but by letting sin be sin with all of its horror. Part of that may mean we pursue repentance by making sure we protect our language about sin. It can mean something small like this. Kevin DeYoung, a pastor in Michigan, recently on his blog posted something about the word brokenness. It's a popular word today among younger Christians my age and younger to talk about how we're broken. It's brokenness. Sin is brokenness. And so, you know, we're all broken, broken, broken. It's, it's sort of a catchword. And, and it's not bad. It's not a bad way to describe sin. But it could be misleading. And it may be too light, Kevin DeYoung argues. You see, brokenness can sound like it's nobody's fault. It could even sound like we're the victim. You know, I'm broken because of my parents. I'm broken because of my society, because of the neighborhood I grew up in. Brokenness. Uh, Same thing with messy. You could say, uh, you know, we're just messy people. And messy sounds good. I mean, you know, for a while there, was the the style was your hair is supposed to be messy, right? You do this. You you put wax in it and you just squeeze it to make it messy. That was the look. If we're going to say sin is messy, then, man... We better make a distinction between messy hair and messy lives. I mean, one word that won't catch on anytime soon to describe sin is to say it's deviant. I'm just deviant. I was deviant today. No one says that. But that's a way of describing sin, isn't it? It deviates from God's ways. Fall short sounds like we just barely missed the mark. But we went astray is really... What it says, we're deviant. I mean, to use one Old Testament graphic example of what sin is, and this one won't catch on among American Christians anytime soon on a popular level, but the Old Old Testament prophets describe sin as whoring around on God. Sin needs to be treated seriously. I think another way we pursue biblical repentance is not just by repenting over sins, but by repenting over sin in general. Our sinfulness as a whole. Not just what we do, but who we are. You don't need an occasion to do repentance. Do you know that? Oh, I know you think you do. That's the way we usually work. We repent of something, and that thing is something we did. And in many ways, sin is what we do. But in other ways, according to the Bible, sin is what we are. We can repent over our very nature, our very bent. That God, yes, is forgiving and redirecting. But there's still a principle of sin, according to Romans 6. It's at work there. We can repent over that. We can pursue biblical repentance by listening to others Isn't that what the Corinthian church did? They listened to Paul's letter and they listened to Pastor Titus who showed up on the scene and said, no, not this, no, not that, no, this, let me tell you, no, you should repent over this. And they didn't resist, not ultimately. Maybe at first they did. The Corinthians listened to Paul, they listened to Titus. We pursue life-giving, life-saving, eternal giving repentance 
in part by listening to others. Also by praying for God's help because he's ultimately the one who grants repentance. He grants it. It's a gift. You can see that in this passage if we looked for it clearly, if we looked for it specifically. But you can see in this passage, look for it on your own, that God here is the one who grants repentance. He gives it. It's a gift from him. It's his work. We can also pursue repentance by letting repentance have its full work, not its abbreviated work. It's full work. In other words, we don't just want guilt. We want guilt and grace. And not just guilt and grace, but guilt and grace and what? Gratitude. Remember those three G's? Guilt, grace, gratitude. Let repentance have its full work. In a sense, there is no repentance that doesn't find itself on the other side. Do we see that? Repentance is not simply seeing your need. It's on the same, it's on the same coin with faith. So there must be trust. It must move from sorrow to joy. It's not just guilt but grace and gratitude. Let repentance have its full work. Start to see the pain of godly grief as a foreshadow of the tender mercies of God in the free conscience, clear conscience, joy-giving reality that's on the other side of knowing your sin is open. Maybe before others, but at least before yourself and before God. And one more thing. I think we pursue repentance, answering this last question. We pursue repentance, believe it or not, by thinking on the cross. Now you might think, Brian, I, I see how the cross will help with my assurance after repentance, but how will the cross help me to see my need for repentance? Well, at the risk of quoting Tim Keller too much, let me give you what Pastor Tim says. He says, it's when we rejoice over Jesus' sacrificial love for us most fully that paradoxically we're most truly convicted of our sin. When we repent out of fear of consequences, you see, this is man-made guilt here, this is worldly sorrow. When we repent out of fear of our consequences, we're not really sorry for the sin, but for ourselves. Fear-based repentance, meaning I better change or God will get me, is really self-pity. In fear-based repentance, we don't learn to hate the sin for itself, and it doesn't lose its attractive power. We learn only to refrain from it for our own sake. But when we rejoice over God's sacrificial, suffering love for us, seeing what it cost him to save us from sin, we learn to hate the sin for what it is. We see what the sin cost God. What most assures us of God's unconditional love is what most convicts us of the evil of sin. Jesus' costly death. Fear-based repentance makes us hate ourselves. Joy, faith-based repentance makes us hate the sin. 
You want to see both the extent of your sin and the extent of God's saving love. Look at the cross. 